0: It is a great Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, somewhat of a miracle not because of the resurrection of course that's a miracle but uh, just trying to get the right spot in Luke today. I kept having to adjust it I'd speed up and slow down speed up and slow down to make sure that uh, the resurrection happened today. Ruth didn't think it would be a good idea to preach on the resurrection next week. She says, you can't have Jesus dying on Easter Sunday. So, um, by the grace of God, we're able to get to that place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is now going to rise from the dead. You know, the resurrection is a pretty big bite to chew off for those who, who don't believe. They don't believe the Bible, they don't believe God. Uh, their God is science or themselves, their own reason or experience. And, and believing that some man who was tortured and crucified and buried rose from the dead is really something that kind of uh, falls within the realm of Santa and the Easter Bunny. Uh, they just can't quite bring themselves to do it. Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes uh, such uh, unbelief as going astray from the truth in 2 Timothy 2.18. Jesus uh, is called in the Scriptures the first fruits of the resurrection because he is the first person to be raised from the dead with a glorified body. If you think about it, other people uh, were raised, the Bible says, uh, only to live and die again. But Jesus was raised immortal. He received the kind of body which every believer will receive. But so far, only Jesus has received that glorified body. And the resurrection is really a critical doctrine. When you survey the scriptures, for instance, Daniel 12, 1 through 3, speaks of believers being resurrected to shine like the stars in heaven. Matthew twenty two thirty 30 says believe, believers, when they are resurrected, will, will not be married anymore. So you who are looking forward to seeing your husband or wife in heaven, they won't be anymore, they'll just be that good friend. There, there is no marriage. In Luke 14, 14, it says believers will be rewarded at the resurrection. Romans four twenty five says Jesus was raised be, because of our justification. Romans 6, 4 tells us that Jesus' resurrection symbolizes the believer's uh, salvation in that they are resurrected from their spiritually dead state to walk in newness of life. Romans 8:11 says Jesus' resurrection gives believers hope that just as he was raised from the dead so all believers will also be raised in the likeness of their savior. Romans 10:9 says we must believe in the resurrection in order to be saved. 1 Corinthians 15:52 says the resurrection will happen in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And as you look at the book of Acts and you see what the apostles were preaching in the early church, they weren't preaching to people that they should ask Jesus in their heart. That never occurs once. Nor are they ever preaching, you should pray the sinner's prayer, which is quite interesting. Many of the things that we now do, they didn't do. But what they did preach is Jesus and the resurrection. That's what Acts 2.31, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 33, chapter 17, verse 18, and other texts tell us. They preach Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. In fact, Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if there's no resurrection... Then Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is worthless. Our faith is a joke. We wouldn't even be here. But the Word of God says that anyone who denies the resurrection cannot be a Christian. There are many who say, well, I believe in the resurrection, uh, kind of. I mean, I believe in the concept. You know, I believe in the... Historical story of the resurrection. But when it gets down to it, they don't really believe that Jesus, a dead man, rose from the dead. But really, Jesus had to rise from the dead because the prophets said he would, because Jesus said he would. And if he didn't, he'd be a liar and the prophets would be a liar and it would undermine the whole authority of the Bible. So really, the resurrection is a critical doctrine because it's God's stamp of approval on Jesus, who he is, and what he accomplished. If Jesus was still in the grave, then Christianity would be for naught. Talk to any pregnant woman and see if they are content to remain in the last week of their third trimester forever. They will tell you no. They want the baby on the inside to get on the outside. And this is really how it is with the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and suffered and died. But he doesn't want to just leave him there on the cross. We don't want to just leave him there in the grave. We want him out of there. Resurrected and glorified. I looked on our website and realized I've preached 25 sermons in the last week of Jesus' life. And we've seen just some pretty gruesome stuff as they rejected and rejected and plotted and and falsely accused and beat and spat upon and scourged and pounded a a thorny crown upon his brow and uh, nailed him to a tree and mocked and wagged their heads at him and just... All the grief that Jesus went through, it was just brutal. But all of that would be for naught if he didn't rise from the dead. Just as a woman forgets her trials when she holds that baby after giving birth. So, when the Christian looks to Jesus in his resurrection, he realizes that all the things that Jesus suffered all the grief, all the pain, all the misery is then set aside. And we rejoice in His resurrection. During His trip to the cross, of course, Jesus was trying to save people. He was trying to save them along the way. He saved the thief. The centurion came to Christ at the last minute. Man, He was pulling people into the kingdom right and left. And right before he died, if you were here on Friday night as we had the Good Friday service, we learned that Jesus said it was finished. Tim told us how that word means accomplished, completed, fulfilled. He had at that point done every single thing that the Father asked for him to do in his life. Remember Jesus said, I've come to do the will of my Father. And so he did. He did all of it. Every single thing he needed to do. And when he finished it all and bore our sins in his body on that tree. He then said it is finished and he gave up his spirit and he died. After that what was happening is, is the Sabbath was approaching. And because the Sabbath was approaching the Jews didn't want these three people hung up. On the Sabbath, especially because it was Passover and it was a high holy day. And so they asked that the legs of the three people, Jesus and the two other criminals, be broken to expedite their death. Because sometimes they'd hang up there for three days, pining away. But when they got to Jesus, the soldier realized he was already dead. And so he got his spear and shoved it up under his ribcage into his heart to make sure he was dead. And he was... And so, Joseph of Arimathea was scurrying back to try to talk to Pilate if he could get Jesus' body and get it prepared for burial before sunset. His Another man, Nicodemus, another ruler of the Jews, was hurrying to get spices and linen wrappings all while, while this was going on. But though Jesus had predicted his death over and over again, the disciples were clueless. They were clueless. Now this is interesting. They just didn't understand. You say, well, why was that? Let me just give you a couple texts which tell us in Luke chapter 9, verse 44 and 45, Jesus says, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered up in the hands of men, but they did not understand this statement. Here it is. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. It was concealed. Something outside of them was keeping the truth from them, so they couldn't understand. Luke 18, verses 31 and 34 we read, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets, about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Now that's pretty simple. He pulls them aside and tells them exactly what's going to happen. Then listen to this, verse 34. But disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. So who is hiding the truth from the disciples? God. God is. You say, well, why would he do that? Why would he hide the truth from his own disciples so they didn't understand that Jesus was going to rise from the dead? Well... We're just going to have to find out this morning. That's why you're here. You probably didn't know that. You see, as soon as Jesus had died, two of his secret followers, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both leaders of the Jews, were working to get Jesus' body prepared. And they did. They, they wrapped him. They washed his body, wrapped him in linen wraps with layers of spices, 100 pounds. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a 100-pound sack of flour. It's big. It's big. And they are cocooning Jesus with a thick layer, probably three inches or more thick, of wrappings and spices. That's what they did then. And this was a kingly burial, a lot of spices. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus witnessed this and probably others. But the irony of this is, is that all the believers didn't realize Jesus was going to rise from the dead, but the unbelievers did. Because we know that they went the next morning after Jesus died and after they celebrated the Passover, they show up to Pilate and say, hey, hey, hey. Jesus said he was going to rise again on the third day. Well, they understand. And they ask Pilate, you know, we need some help here. He says, well, you have a guard, you know, 12 trained Roman soldiers. I will put them under your charge. And go make the tomb as secure as possible. Think about that. To guard a corpse. Usually, corpses don't need guarding. I've been to Forest Lawn a lot of times, and I've never seen people guarding dead people. They usually don't get up and run away. Now, you need to know the Roman guards, they're trained warriors. Trained to guard, you know, a three foot by three foot piece of ground upon pain of death. If they ever fell asleep on duty, they would be executed. Serious business. And so on this tomb, they roll this huge stone. Mark says it was extremely large. Now, the average stone is big enough. Now, you can imagine if you have a tomb cut out of solid rock. It's like a bank vault. And you're going to seal that tomb with the stone. Well, even if you made the entrance really short, you know, four feet, let's say, you have to have a stone wheel that is you know, at least a little more than four feet tall, maybe six or eight inches or a foot thick, who knows? But even if it was six inches, I mean, how much does a four-foot diameter piece of rock weigh? We're talking major weight. And what they would do is they would cut a channel into the bedrock so that the stone would roll and seal the entrance. That's what happened At Jesus's, the stone was rolled into place, moved into place, and then the seal of Rome was put upon it. Probably four big clay globs were stuck on the face of the tomb with leather straps in between, each with the seal of Rome, saying, If you mess with this tomb, you bring down the wrath of Rome upon you, for you are defying Rome. And then the soldiers are there. Jesus is inside, beat up, scourged, crucified, and pierced through and wrapped up like a mummy. And that's where we left off last time. Jesus is dead on the inside. We have soldiers guarding the outside. It's sealed up. So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke 24 as we look at verses 1 through 12. Luke 24 verses one through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they and this is a group of women, we'll see in verse 10 came to the tomb bringing the spices which they prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near, them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles but these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe but Peter got up and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in he saw the linen wrappings only and he went away from his home went away to his home marveling at what had happened what we have here in this text is really two responses you can have. We're going to have three points, but really two responses you can have to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first is you can choose not to believe. That's one response. That's one we see in the text here. Look at verse chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, and just stop there. This is Sunday. Sunday morning. Jesus rises from the dead right after sunrise. Now, when you read all the gospel accounts... And you're trying to piece together all these statements by all these witnesses because there was a lot of people. Don't just think of, you know, Peter and John and a couple women there. Others, it says, a large group. Um, these same women are referenced in Luke chapter 8 as many others. They, he's got a, an entourage. And so don't think of it as just a few people dabbling around. There's soldiers. There's the disciples. There's this large group of women. And so a lot of things are happening as they're running back and forth in the excitement of the event. And so what happens here is Jesus rises early Sunday morning. Now some people, uh, you know, skeptics, they try to... Throw rocks at the Bible and, you know, the veracity of the scriptures and say, well, the, the, you know, Jesus said he'd be three days and nights. And it wasn't. He was only in there part of Friday and, and Saturday and just part of Sunday. And so the Bible's not true and Jesus is a liar. Well, that I find that so interesting how when texts should be taken literally, they don't take them literally. And when they shouldn't, they do. When I, if I asked you, did you work on Friday? You said, yeah. Oh, so you work 24 hours straight, huh? Well, well, well no. Liar. <laughs> See, they're like, what's that? So did you work last week? Yeah. Oh, so you work seven 24-hour periods. Well, well no. Liar. <laughs> Listen, was Jesus in the grave? Was he in the tomb? Friday, right before sunset? Yes. Was Jesus in the tomb all of Saturday of the Sabbath? Yes. And remember the Jews started their day at sunset. Was he in the tomb, you know, half of Sunday, all night long until sunrise? Yes. So was he in the tomb three days and nights? Yes. So don't let the skeptics try to mess with you. Look at the middle of verse 24. Continues. They, the group of women, came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. Why? Why? Because they expected to find what? The body of Jesus. I mean, why bring spices to finish, you know, embalming Jesus if he's not there? They wouldn't have done this unless they thought they were going to find a body there. Now, let's say you borrowed something from me and said, Hey, Jack, uh, I'm going to be in the area. I'll be by your house. Uh, You going to be home Saturday afternoon? No. So is that when you bring it over? No, I told you I wasn't going to be there, so you don't come then. Jesus said, I'm not going to be in the tomb anymore. Over 15 times the Gospels record this. And that's just what the Gospels record. It's like, well, okay, okay, okay. So so what are you saying? You're not going to be in the tomb. You're not going to be there. Look at verse 2. And they, the women, found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, this right here, uh, it takes about 20 guys to move a normal-sized stone. And as I said, Mark says in chapter 16, verse 4, that the stone was extremely large. But let's just say 20 guys. So the women, as they're coming, are going, well, who's going to um, move the stone for us? That's one of their thoughts. They probably don't know about the soldiers because the soldiers weren't assigned until Saturday morning, the Sabbath the morning, the day before. And so they might not even know they were there. And the soldiers seem to have exited. We'll talk about them in a second. But they're thinking about, okay, how are we going to get the stone rolled back? Now, if you have a stone like that, you get all these people and you start pushing on it and you roll it up and you have somebody put a wedge in front of it. And you do that so that it stays there because it's put at an angle to keep it sealed. Then you can deal with whatever you're dealing with in the tomb. And then you have people push, move the wedge, and then it just kind of self-clothing. So if you're going to roll the stone away, you have to roll the stone away uphill and far enough uphill that it's no longer in that channel that it's no longer able to roll back. And that's how they find it. The women find it that way. And they're wondering. Matthew chapter 28 verses 2 through 4 tells us what happened to the soldiers who probably left right before they got there. The women had left when it was still dark and as they traveled the sun began to rise and when they finally got there the sun had risen and apparently the soldiers were gone for they are not mentioned And Matthew 28, verse 2 says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook with fear of him and became like dead men, which is a euphemism for they fainted from fear. These hardened warriors. You know, they're down, man. It's like... When there's sensory overload, when there's a lot of fear, what your body does to protect you from brain trauma is it relaxes all your blood vessels. The blood pressure plummets and you wake up on the ground with the smelling salts. Wake up. All these guys, they're passed out. Warren Wiersbe rightly observes, quote, The earthquake and the angel opened the tomb not to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. The phrase, they became like dead men, tells us it was scary. The whole earth shaking and and the angels and the radiant light and they're just, "Ah!" they're all dead. Like dead men, they just fall down. They don't actually die, but they fall down like dead men. They just pass out. And they say, well, what happened to him? Well, Matthew goes on to tell us what happened to him. Matthew 28, verse 11 through 18 goes on to explain. Now, while they were on their way, a reference to the disciples, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. So some of the guard must have ran away. Some of the guard went into the city to say, guess what happened? Guess what happened? And they come to the priests and the Jewish leaders. And they go, we were there. We were all guarding the tomb. There was this huge earthquake. And the stone rolled away. And there was this guy. And he was lit up. And we faded. <laughs> and verse 12 says of Matthew 28, And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together which means they all heard the story about Jesus' resurrection and the angel and the stone being rolled away, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say the disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, the soldiers can't say that. Because that would be admitting to dereliction of duty and they would be executed if they said that. But the Jewish leaders know this. So then they say, and if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. Back to the women who were the first to arrive at Jesus's tomb after the soldiers departed. Look at Luke 24, verse 3. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It was gone. Imagine that. The fact that they're looking for the body, they're still not convinced he's raised from the dead. At this point, according to John chapter 20, verse 2, Mary Magdalene, who must have been at the back of the pack of these women, she hears them saying, his body, it's gone, it's missing. And she then bolts and returns and goes back and meets up with Peter and John. It says, they've, well, I'll tell you what they said. John 20, verse 2. She says, she says to him, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So they're, they're, she's hysterical. They've taken the body of Jesus. So while Mary was running back to tell Peter, look at verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, in other words, they're all standing around going, what happened? What happened? I mean, you could just hear them, you know, talk with big furrows on their brows. So where's Jesus' body? And another one who's kind of farther back in the group says, well, you mean it's not there? And they said, no, we can't see it. And another one says, well, where did they put it? And as they're standing there perplexed, Bewildered, something happens. Look at the middle of verse 4. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Now, dazzling clothing does not mean expensive clothing. It does not mean fashionable clothing. And it does not mean covered with sequins. It means that the clothing was radiant Like lightning, as a matter of fact, Luke 17, verse 24, uses the same Greek word to describe lightning. Lightning is bright, white, you know, retina-burning, flash-bulb light. That's what it was like. And look at verse 5. And the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. So this whole group of women gets there. They're cackling. Mary Magdalene shoots off. And all of a sudden these two men appear. And they're just, the light is just blazing. And the women, ah! They do a face plant. They put their faces to the ground in terror. They're scared to death. And you can just see them there. All all of them, you know, maybe 15, 20, maybe 100 of them. I don't know. We don't know how many. And look at the middle of verse 5. And the men said to them while their faces are on the ground, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? That is such a good question. What are you doing here? Why are you bringing spices? Why are you looking for the body of Jesus? Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? You know, Jesus had left heaven 33 years before that. And now he had died, he had been resurrected, and he's now back in the spiritual realm, and all the angels are like, Oh, Lord, we're so glad to have you back. And he tells two of them, Yeah, um, what I need you to do is, right before dawn, on Sunday morning, I want you to go to the tomb, because there's going to be a large group of women who are going to show up, hoping to still find my body there uh, in the tomb. And I need you to tell them, that I have risen just like I told them before. Now, I don't know how casual the angels are with Jesus, and if they can get clarification and things like that. But I could imagine one saying, but Lord, why are they going to the tomb? I mean, you told them over and over again, you were going to rise from the dead. Think of all the misery, the grief, the fretting, the anxiety, and all that, that would have been avoided if they would have understood Jesus' words. But as we mentioned already, it's been kept for them. Why? We're going to find out. And instead of, you know, moping around all Sabbath, all, you know, the night leading up to Sunday morning, they would have said, well, it's tomorrow. He said he'd be raising tomorrow. He's going to be out of there tomorrow, He'll be back, back with this good as new. He told us that over and over again. And, you know, they would have told, you know, Joseph of and Nicodemus, hey, 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 don't, don't go to all that expense. I mean, it's, it's not, he's going to be, he's going to come out of the grave. That don't bother. And then they'd be talking about, I wonder if he's still gonna, be like, if all his wounds are gonna be healed, or if he's gonna have any scars, and I wonder what he's gonna wear. Do you think he'll be like translucent? And you know, they'd be having those kind of conversations, excited, looking forward to Sunday when Jesus would rise from the dead. But as I said earlier, they didn't understand. They didn't believe. And they're really the two responses you can have concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One response, like the response of the disciples, is don't believe. Ignore what Jesus said. Deny all the witnesses of the resurrection. Think that Christianity is a farce, that Jesus died, was swept away. They didn't steal him away and snuck him past there. That the one theory that it was the swoon theory. Jesus, after being beaten all night and crucified and run through with the spear and dead and wrapped in cloths and laid in a tomb, was really not dead. He woke up with 100 pounds of linen wrappings of spice on him and thought, i got to get out of here. (laughs) Because the dampness of the tomb revived him. So he struggled around and got all the linen wrappings wrappings off and then he got the stone revived and he took that stone that took 20 or 30 men to move and he just rolled it out of the way quietly and snook past the guards without them noticing hardly see some people though just don't want to believe in the resurrection and maybe you have always called yourself a christian but you've never really believed in the resurrection yourself it's just kind of like the easter bunny or santa you just it's kind of myth You know, you understand it's part of the story. And you understand, you know, it's what Christians, you know, are supposed to believe. But, you know, come on, you're a, a modern person in the modern age. And, you know, you believe in science, not the Bible. And maybe, you know, you understand even the importance of believing the resurrection in order to actually be a Christian. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, which means if you don't believe, you won't be. You're on your way to hell. And you understand that, but you say, well, you know, Pastor Jack, I could be dishonest and say, yeah, I believe, but I don't. And you know what? That's one response. Now, I hope the Holy Spirit convinces you and God changes your mind as He did with the women. Our next point. You can choose to believe. Look at verse 6. The angels, the women, still groveling on the ground say, He is not here. He is risen. This statement is really the seal of salvation that all that Jesus finished in his life and death, all that he accomplished, is now verified by the fact he is risen from the dead. This is like a monumental statement. Now, how do you think, it's just, you know, I, I hope when we get to heaven, God will give us like, you know, videos or let us go back in time or whatever to kind of watch what happened. How do you think the angel said that statement? Kind of in a hard, scolding tone. He is not here, he's risen. <laughs> or maybe a wake up and smell the roses tone. He's not here, He's risen or maybe they said it in a very gentle and factual tone he is not here he's risen <laughs> idiot <laughs> you know i mean you wonder what was the tone what did he say what, what what was the tone i think it was kind of a rebuking tone you say why is that well Look at the middle of verse 6. The angels continue, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee saying, the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day rise again. One commentator noted, quote, how remarkable it is to hear angels quoting the whole sentence of Christ to the disciples mentioning where he it was uttered and wondering it was not fresh in the memory of, in their memory as doubtless as it was in theirs. So in other words. It's pretty amazing to see how tenacious and how interested the angels were in Jesus and his life. And that in this instant they recall not only the place but the exact f- words that Jesus uttered to them. And they're going, we heard it. You heard it. So what is the deal? Now. Now. This little phrase where he says, remember how he spoke to you. Now, we could take that one of two ways. And one way is to say something like this. You know, remember, you know, get your brain going here. Go back in time. Conjure this back up. You know, recall memory. You know, find the file. Get it out there. Kind of an encouragement. But that's not what's happening here. This is a command. I command you to remember is really what it is. I command you to remember. That's why I think this is more of a kind of rebuking tone. Remember what he said to you. And then what happens? Right after they give that command, what what do the women do? Well, look at them, verse 8. And they remembered his words. And return from the tomb and report all these things to the eleven of the rest. God opened their eyes to the truth. When the command from the angel was given to remember, God then gave them the ability to understand. And this is such a common thing that you see in scriptures. That God never commands us to do anything. He does not give us the grace to do it, right? And this is exactly what happened. All of a sudden they realize, whoa! He did tell us that. He did rise from the dead. And then they're probably all cheering and doing whatever. And they all stampede back to the apostles to tell them what happened. Now, you just need to picture the disciples at this point. Now, granted, Mary Magdalene has already bolted back. She didn't even get to see the angel. She bolted back, told Peter and John. Peter and John then are now bolting to the tomb, and the herd of women is bolting back. They must have been a different way, because it doesn't talk about them encountering each other. And you could just see them there, you know? The other apostles and disciples sitting in the house, downcast, grieving, Morning, now, what are we going to do i don 't know what you want to do. think we should go back to our job i don't know. what are we going to do i don 't know. One says, if we could only figured out that Judas was the, the traitor, we could have stopped all of this. If only we had not spent so long praying in the garden, they wouldn't have found us there, and we would have escaped. Then another one says, if only we would have faced the mob and, and fought back and given Jesus a chance to escape, then this wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have died. And if only we had fought harder to free Jesus and explain to Pilate the plot that the Jews, then they probably would have just let him go. And all the disciples are mourning, and the women who didn't go to the tomb are mourning. And then the herd of very emotionally charged women who've just seen an angel and have just been illumined by God come stampeding in. And simultaneously they're saying, hey, we're at the tomb and the stone was rolled away. And there was this huge, huge, bright light. We saw this guy. We fell on our faces and he told us it was an angel. There two angels. And they started... All telling their story to different people simultaneously. And the apostles sure are just being fired upon by all these women are like, whoa! And you know what? This teaches us something about true belief. True belief takes action. There's kind of an intellectual belief we can have and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. And then you don't do anything. I mean, would you say these women really believed if, in fact, they saw the open tomb, heard the angel, and then just kind of nonchalantly strolled back to the disciples? And when they got back, they entered the house and didn't say anything. I mean, would you say, oh, yeah, they believe, they're convinced? No. Why? Because if they believed, they would have what? Said something. That's what it, saving faith does. It isn't just mental faith. It's mental faith that we put our trust in. And it moves us to action. And we tell people about Jesus. You go home, you go to work, you hang out with unbelievers during the week. You never tell them about Jesus. You never tell them the gospel. You never tell them about your faith. Do you really believe? No. Friend, you are like those that James addresses in James chapter 2 when he says, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. Do they know who Jesus is? Sure. He was born of a virgin, sure. Lived the perfect life, sure. Died on the cross, sure. Rose again the third day, absolutely. Do they follow him? No. Intellectual faith is not enough. You must put your faith into action. And Jesus commands, commands everyone to turn from their sins and believe in him. A belief that is not merely intellectual, but says, I am going to live for the Lord since he died for me and rose again from the dead. What if you're just sitting there going, Pastor Jack, listen, you know, I'm, I'm following you, but I'm just not quite ready to do the Jesus thing. I just need to postpone it for a while. I, I'm, I've got certain things in my life, certain sins I don't want to leave. I've got certain crooked business practices that I don't want to forsake. I've got things in my life I want to be in control of. And I know that if I became a Christian, I would have to relinquish that. And so I'm not just ready to do that yet. Well, there is still hope for you. And this brings us to our third point, which in one point doesn't seem all that encouraging, but believe me, it is. You can also choose not to believe in the resurrection, even against overwhelming evidence. Look at verse 10. Now they, the women, were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. And we've learned that Jesus had many followers. And so here they all are. Peter, James, and John, of course, were kind of his key ones. And, and Peter and, and John, they've bolted. So we're not just talking about twelve, the 12 apostles minus Judas, 11. We're talking about a large group. And all these women come in all excited, man. They're all wound. They're just... You just can't believe what we just saw. And look at verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe. God save us from stubborn unbelief. You know, did the apostles and the disciples know these women? Yeah. Did they know that these women were God-fearing women? Sure. Did these women have a habit of lying? No. Were they trustworthy? Yes. And here's all these first-hand witnesses who have never lied to them before, all coming in, all saying the same thing, and they would not believe. They refused to do it. And verse 11 says that what they said appeared to them to be nonsense. This word nonsense in the Greek means idle tale, silly talk, you know, a humbug, a hysterical women's delusion. Why is this recorded? Why are we told that they were blinded, they were blinded, they were blinded, and they didn't understand, they didn't understand, they didn't understand? You're thinking, well, why, what is the purpose? Why would God even do that? Two reasons. First, because their unbelief is one of the strongest arguments for the truthfulness of the resurrection story. Now, if you and I were composing a resurrection story, and I had to get a group of you together, and we were going to try to promote the lie that, you know, a resurrection took place, I would say, okay, this is what we're going to say. And we'd all talk about it, right? And we'd all get our stories in a line, right? So everything would match up perfectly, right? And that is how a lot of times police know that criminals are lying because their stories are so perfect, they can't be true. But notice here. This is no bit of propaganda. The apostles don't even believe. All his followers, his key followers, they won't even believe it. I mean, some way to start a movement, right? No, no, nobody believes except the woman At this point, look at verse 12. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. We know that John was with him from John chapter 20. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. But he hadn't believed yet. He still wasn't believing. All he thought is the tomb's empty. There's the wrappings. John chapter 20, verses two through nine says this, So Peter and the other disciple went forth, the other disciples, John, he always he doesn't like to promote himself, so he just calls himself the other guy. And they were going to the tomb, and the two were running after, running together, and the other disciple John ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the, the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. There's some cool things to think about that, but not today. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and they saw and believed. He saw and believed. So John believed. Peter still wasn't believing. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. What's the second reason the gospel writers tell us about the unbelief of the apostles and disciples for this reason here? Because even if at first you refuse to believe in the face of overwhelming evidence, God's grace is still sufficient To get you to that place. Because in very short order. They all believe. They all believe. You need to ask God to give you faith. If you don't have faith. You need to ask him to open your eyes. You need to tell him. Listen Lord. I have an intellectual faith. But I'm not living for you. I'm not trusting you. I don't even know if I want to. You need to help my unbelief so that I can live for you. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.8 and 9, it's by grace you're saved. That's the unmerited favor of God. God saves you and that not of yourselves. God saves you. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, something you don't earn. It's what God does. It's not a result of any works you do. It's of God. God's the one who saves sinners, so go to God. If you need faith, go to God. If you need salvation, go to God. It's okay. You can be honest with God. He's not up there going, well, I didn't know you were thinking that. He already knows. He's waiting for you. He wants to help you, but you need to humble yourself. You need to come to him in faith and say, Lord, I see that I need to believe in the resurrection, but man, I'm just having a hard time with this. I've got all these excuses. I've got all these things. Listen, seek the Lord Say, Lord, just help me to understand and believe this so that my life changes. And he's not going to go, well, I don't know. He will do it. He will do it. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn on Psalm 22, which is referenced multiple times in reference to Jesus and his suffering. And this is what he wrote. Now let our mournful songs record the dying sorrows of our Lord. When he complained in tears and blood, as one forsaken of his God, the Jews beheld him thus forlorn, and shake their heads, and laugh in scorn. He rescued others from the grave, now let him try himself to save. This is the man who did once pretend God was his father and his friend. If God, the blessed, loved him so, why does he fail to help him now? Barbarous people, cruel priests, how they stood round like savage beasts. The lion, like lions, gaping to devour when God had left him in their power. They wound his head, his hands, his feet, till streams of blood each other meet. By lot, his garments they divide and mock the pain, pangs in which he died. Now, if Watts would have stopped there, that would have been kind of like the ultimate bummer poem. But he didn't. He finished with this one last little stanza. But God, His Father, heard His cry. Raised from the dead, He reigns on high. The nations learn His righteousness. And humble sinners taste His grace. Are you a sinner? Then humble yourself. Seek the Lord and taste His grace. He is risen. risen Pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and grace. In sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, to bear our burdens, our guilt, our shame, to suffer wrath, to experience hell on earth, A separation from you and all for sinners. All because of his love for sinners. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, we thank you for that. I pray that you would help any person here who is having trouble believing in the resurrection that they would believe. I pray that they would seek you in humility and say, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. That you, by your grace, would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And for the rest of us, may we rejoice today and every day, knowing that he is risen, risen, risen indeed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.